Hello and welcome to this week's Hong Kong Heritage, where I rejoin veteran radio and print journalist Francis Moriarty. Francis worked as the political reporter for RTHK's Radio 3 for 19 years. He was a founder of the Hong Kong Human Rights Press Awards. Last week he told me about his American childhood and work as a campaigner against the Vietnam War. This week we move on to his career as both a print and radio journalist, working for the Washington Post when his friend, the gay rights pioneer Harvey Milk, was assassinated. He also reported on the Jonestown Massacre and later in Lebanon, Berlin and Hong Kong. I think that when I really got going as a journalist, it was covering the origins of the gay movement, uh, the reactions against the gay movement, something called Proposition 13 in California, which was a statewide ballot initiative having to do with taxes, and it reverberates to this day. And I got to know a lot of movers and shakers in San Francisco. I had a house in the Haight-Ashbury, I mean a flat in the Haight-Ashbury. I ultimately, while driving a taxi cab and making more money, afforded a an office upstairs over a place called City Lights Bookstore, which is a very famous location there. It's, it, they were the publishers of Allen Ginsberg and Howell. It's owned by Lawrence Ferlinghetti, who's in his 90s and still with us, still sharp. Uh, Lawrence. Ferlinghetti. He was one of the core of the beat thing with Kerouac and all of those people. And I rented an office upstairs above the City Lights bookstore for at least a decade or more. And I got involved through New West Magazine. I became the Northern California political editor, so I began meeting a lot of people and covering stories. But it turned into covering the beginning of the gay movement. Uh, Harvey Milk, who's become the subject of a movie, whom I knew very well. Harvey and I became friends. He was a very interesting guy. We'd sometimes get together at 2, 3 o'clock in the morning, have breakfast some, at some all-night breakfast place and talk about politics and life and what was going on and, and, and what have you. The last time I saw Harvey, um, his body was still warm. His feet were sticking up from behind the desk. He had very large feet. And Diane Feinstein, who was then a now U.S. senator and then was a member of the Board of Supervisors, saw me looking through the door, and she knew exactly what I was going to do. I was going to walk in. I mean, I knew Harvey. He was my friend. I wanted to see what happened to him. And she saw me looking, and she, she read my mind perfectly. And she just reached over and closed the door and said, it's, it's a crime scene. And so I, I stayed out. So I was, But I was literally about eight feet probably from his body when after he got shot. Um, yeah, so I covered that. I covered the subsequent trial, uh, the riots that, that occurred. Uh, uh, People's Temple, People's Temple was actually, it had its own separate issues, but it was involved because the Reverend Jim Jones, the leader of that group, uh, was uh, a big player in politics in San Francisco, providing money and mostly manpower, church members, who could go out and knock on doors and deliver literature and all that so stuff. So this was a cult? Oh, yeah. People's Temple was serious. It was a serious cult. By any definition, it was a cult. Uh, and, and it led people down a terrible, terrible path. People in Guyana, the followers, had, they were setting up an alternative paradise for themselves in Guyana to get away from all the problems of America, spelled with a K. They were convinced and paranoid, and, and Reverend Jim Jones had fueled the paranoia uh, that they were going to send troops down and, and all this other kind of stuff. So they committed ritual suicide. And I forget the exact number, 936 or 942, something like that. People committed suicide. They killed, it was just homicide suicide because they, they made their kids drink poison and then they drank it themselves. And it was horrible. And that was the Kool-Aid? That was the Kool-Aid. Because 79 was the year that George and Harvey were assassinated. And I had been covering the People's Temple story right up. George. Uh, Moscone, the mayor of San Francisco, uh, and Harvey Milk, the gay supervisor. Uh, they were killed by a guy named Dan White, who was an ex-fireman 
ex-police officer, ex-Vietnam vet. I had been covering the People's Temple story intensively for a period of time because of so much has been happening. I was in San Francisco doing stuff, and in the midst of all this, the Guiana stuff happened. So I covered all that, all this stuff. I wasn't in Guiana, but I knew the people who had gone down, the congressmen and others who were shot, and the reporters who were shot. And all. I, knew, I knew all them all personally. So it was a very personal story. So as this was kind of all quieting down a bit, I was going to get in, I was going to, I was going to take a break for a day. Called the desk and said, I, I think it's quieting down. And they said, yeah, we agree. Um, take a day or two and see where things are. I had a radio in my bathroom. Turned on the radio, listening. And I was just about to climb into the shower. So I had one leg in the, tub, in the tub and the other one about to. And I heard someone I knew who worked for um, KCBS radio come on and say, we hear reports of a possible shooting in City Hall. And I, I stood there with the water running on one side. And, and I heard the voice say, we, hear un- we have unconfirmed reports that there's been a shooting inside City Hall and that the mayor may have been shot. At this point, I flip off the water. I don't even bother looking for a towel. I run out. I grab the telephone. I call the Washington Post desk. I pull my clothes out, still wet, jump into my car. If you time the lights correctly going into town at 28 miles an hour, I knew as being a taxi driver, you could hit every green light. So I hit the green lights all the way down to City Hall. It was a straight shot down Fell Street. And I, and I pull up at City Hall outside in a place where I shouldn't park, pulled up on the sidewalk, half on the sidewalk, half on the road, got out and ran in the side door. I get to Harvey's office. I open up the door, and there's a policeman. I know everybody in the office. And all the guys and all the, the, the ladies are, you know, they see me, and they're throwing my arms around me, and they're all crying and all this other kind of stuff. And this is when I, I see Diane Feinstein sitting at her desk. And I walk over towards Harvey's office and embracing the guys, and I look and I see Harvey's feet. She closes the door, and somebody says at some point, Mel Wax, that was the press secretary for the mayor, is meeting reporters down the hallway. So we just run top speed across City Hall, down to the hallway. And Mel is there, and he says, there, you know, there's been a shooting. The mayor, I can confirm, has been shot. And it's fatal. And the shooter is former supervisor Dan White. And, what uh, happened to him? It sparked a huge riot in San Francisco. I think he was given a seven-and-a-half-year sentence for killing two public officials in the course of their duty. Now in California, that has been elevated to like a really serious crime. Harvey Milk, speaking from the camera store on the evening of Friday, November 18th. This is to be played only in the event of my death by assassination. I fully realize that um, a person uh, who stands for what I stand for, an activist, gay activist, becomes the target or the potential target for somebody who is insecure, terrified, afraid, or very disturbed themselves. Knowing that uh, I could be assassinated at any moment, at any time, I feel it's important that some people know my thoughts. Uh, And so, following my thoughts, my wishes, my desires, whatever, and uh, I'd like to pass them on and have them played for the appropriate people. The first and most obvious and most concerned is that if I was to be shot and killed, the mayor 
is the power, it's George Moscone, of appointing my successor on the Board of Supervisors. So I would like to have him know what my thoughts are. I have never considered myself a candidate. I have always considered myself part of a movement, part of a candidacy. So you're working for the Washington Post, and, and you used to supplement your salary also by driving a cab. Yeah, I was working as a, as a stringer for the Washington Post. I was never full-time, but full-time for kind of periods where they'd hire you by the day, but I was never on staff. And uh, and driving a taxi cab, I drove for uh, Yellow Taxi, and then ultimately for a company called Luxor. Taxi driving is an interesting career. In the midst of all this, a woman that I knew from when I was in grad school at Berkeley, who'd gone to Europe to study German and had married a German, sent me a little cutout ad from a magazine or a newspaper and I had studied a little bit of German, and she said to me, uh, wrote, she wrote on it, said, I don't think your German is quite good enough to understand this ad. She was absolutely right. So I've translated it for you. But this just sounds like you. And it was an ad for something called Journalists in Europe, which is a fellowship program in Paris. So I got a copy of the application form and threw together whatever they wanted and sent it off. And, and lo and behold, I got a letter saying, you've been accepted for this program. So I arrived in Paris. I had arranged through a friend to stay in a flat that was upstairs over what the French call a life show. It basically a strip club. It was a very colorful and interesting place to live, uh, right in the heart of what was still a red light district in, in Paris. So what year is this? This would be 1982. And François Mitterrand had just been elected to be the... the uh, president of France and things were going through great changes. It was really, really a good time to be there. And what did your fellowship involve? Fellowship involved meeting other journalists from all over the world and it involved making what the French called enquête or study tours. So I ended up going to Ireland and, and having a study tour in Ireland and I went to uh, Italy and did an enquête on the mafia and banking and I went to uh, Lebanon and Israel and was there for the signing of the Camp David Accords and got smuggled inside a rug by by a Bedouin with a truck into the last Israeli-occupied town of the Sinai Peninsula before it was handed over to the Egyptians and these groups of, of uh, zealous religious extremists and, and their supporters had taken over the town and the army. What had, was the town called? Yamit. And the army had to get them out of there, and it turned into a big sort of trauma for the for the country. And I got to go there. I got to go to Lebanon. We all expected. So Lebanon, what year? Eighty-two. Oh my goodness. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, and 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 I met a young guy who was working very hard to cover that beat very successfully, named Tom Friedman. Uh, Tom won't remember, but I remember meeting him in the bar. And uh, oh, some very interesting characters uh, at, at that time. And I kept waiting because we expected... So when you did a study tour, what did it involve? <laughs> writing stories? Yeah, or? yeah, we had a magazine that was produced called Europe, uh, Europe, and, and we would go off and do these... Uh, so you're acting a stringer, basically? Well, in a way, yeah, but it was your, your, more like a staff because it was, it was a produced by all of the members of the fellowship. And you'd just go and do stints of several months or several yeah, weeks? Yeah, exactly like that, yeah. yeah. And, 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 and in-depth stories about, about different things. So, I, oh, so what was Beirut like? 
Oh, it was fabulous. My ostensible story was continuing French influence. Yeah, but was it Civil War at the time? Oh, yeah, of course it was Civil War. Yeah, yeah. Somebody, one of the guys who was there all the time, they, a bunch of them got together and tried to do a census, and they counted at least 72 distinctly different militias operating inside Beirut. Oh, yeah. Oh, no. I mean, I, the, <laughs> the guy at the counter in the, in the famous hotel, Commodore, smiled to me and said, we have a very nice room for you, sir, facing, facing the road. And I said, oh, thank you very much. <laughs> it's the worst room you could possibly have <laughs> because you should be facing the inner courtyard. You don't want to be facing the street. So I get upstairs and putting my clothes out and getting ready to stretch out for a minute and take a nap in here. <laughs> and, and I went, oh, my God, what the hell is going on here? And, and, and um, yeah, it was a really interesting period of time. And I got to go visit the Green Line in the east side. And I got people in the Christian community and people in the Muslim community and, and the the, the, the people that were for Hezbollah, and I got to meet all different kinds of people while I was there, and it was really, uh, really, really a good, good experience. So I was waiting for the Israeli invasion. We all were, and I was kind of running out of money. I saw an article in French: the expected Israeli invasion, which is now thought unlikely to happen. And I thought, these guys know better than I do. They're here a long time. They've got their own sources. If this guy who writes for this newspaper says it's unlikely to happen. I'll take the hint, because one thing you should learn as a foreign correspondent is not only how to get into a place, but how to get out and win. All right? I decided to cut my losses, got on an airplane, had to fly, fly from, from Lebanon to Egypt, and then from Egypt I had to go back because my flight was from Israel. I arrived back in Paris, and I no sooner arrived back than I pick up a newspaper, and the Israelis have just invaded Lebanon. You don't get every story. You went to Beirut, and then what happens after that? Well, there were a number of different stories. I also spent a lot of time while I was in, in Europe. Uh, I got to know a lot of people in Germany, especially in Berlin, and I got to know some people in the dissident community in East Berlin, uh, particularly people working in the church movement, and they were very involved in trying to look at the question of eventual reunification, how could it be done, what would it look like, and also getting dissidents out of East Germany into West Germany. So I got to know a lot of these, these various people. So, and because I was an American, and at that time uh, Berlin was divided into quadrants, Soviet, American, British, and French, as an American citizen, I could go into East Berlin whenever I wanted to and spend 24 hours. So if I went in at 2 o'clock in the morning, I could come back out at 2 o'clock the next morning. And, and I would do things like that. And so I got to know a lot of people and stayed at their home and had some bizarre experiences. Um, getting Such followed. as? Well, I went to visit the Archbishop, Lutheran Archbishop of East Germany in East Berlin. And I went to his home in a bourgeois neighborhood in East Berlin. His wife came into the room with this plate of the most gorgeous German pastries and little delectable sweet things that you will ever see. And they offered me some. So I had one, said thank you very much. And um, she was very quiet and smiling, and he was chatting with me. He said, have another one, have another one. We, we, you know. And I said, well, thank you. I, was, I said, they're very rich. And you know, I thought, wait a minute, what's going on here? And he said, take some more, take some more. I can tell you like them. We, we, we've got lots of them here or whatever. And I glanced at his wife in the doorway, and she's like wringing her hands. And she's got this look on her face that says, Please don't take any more. I mean, she didn't want to show it, but that's what the look in the eyes was. was. And I thought, they don't see these. This is all for me. This is all presentation. This is all propaganda. And she's just hoping I walk out of here and they get to scarf these things because they'll never see them again. I do the interview with him and 
you know, talk about these various subjects, and I go out the door. And by now, the sun's gone down, and it's it's dark. And I don't feel in any way fearful, but you know, you wouldn't. You didn't worry about street crime in Eastern Europe. So I walked down the street. Now, in this section of East Berlin, I think till this day, because I went back a few years ago and, and, it, and went up into the big space needle and looked down on the city. And this big neighborhood still doesn't have many street lights. So Berlin looks all bright and lit up at night, except for this one big swath, which is residential and doesn't have street lamps. And that's part of Old East Berlin. So <clears throat> I'm in this neighborhood. And there's only one street lamp probably 50 yards down at the end of the street where it intersects with a street that runs around over towards the uh, underground, the U-Bahn station for East Berlin. And as I walk down the sidewalk, I look over at this one street lamp, which is a a bulb with a little sort of pie-shaped thing over the top of it, and there is a guy, and I swear to you, he's wearing a top coat, he's got a snap-brim Borsellino hat under the street lamp, and a cigarette. And as I approach toward him, he inhales on the cigarette so that the glow of the cigarette gets brighter and it illuminates just his nose and under the hat and whatever. So I just see the outline of his face under the hat. And this is letting me know I'm being watched. Right? And I thought, yeah, yeah, those cookies. <laughs> right. And and then I, so I just walked and went back to the, to, to the U-Bahn station and went back to West Berlin. So this this East Berlin experience was important for me for, uh, and West Berlin experience was important for a number of reasons because when I finally got a job offer to come to Hong Kong, yeah. I had to decide did I want to stay in Europe or did I want to go? So how did the Hong Kong offer come about? I was working uh, as a full-time part-timer, which means working full-time for part-time pay. AFP offered me a job, and they said, well, we'll move you and your belongings, which were then boxed up in San Francisco, um, to Hong Kong. And I thought, you know, how many times in life is somebody going to offer to move you and your stuff halfway around the world on their nickel? Not many. So I accepted, to make a long story short, I accepted the offer and came out to Hong Kong. But I had to decide. It was a difficult process because I had competing job offers. In addition to the Herald Tribune, I had some other job offers. And this is when? This is 89, early 89. I was mulling all this, and I was visiting friends in West Berlin, and I went down to the wall. And it was a gray and misty, very Berlin, John le Carré kind of day. And I'm standing up on one of the observation platforms overlooking the wall. And there's two young guys in the East German observation thing across from me looking at me with binoculars. I can see their faces without binoculars, but they've got binoculars to really look well at me. I suspect they were looking at me like, what, what was I wearing? You know, and what kind of clothes did I have? Yeah, it was, it was, that's probably really what it was. But it just made you feel kind of creepy. And then you look at this giant area behind, because it wasn't one wall, it was actually two walls. Right? And between them were vast areas of a couple of football fields wide that ostensibly were mined and had dogs on, on, on runs and, you know, and all this kind of stuff. And barbed wire. So if you tried to run over the wall to West Berlin, you, you either wouldn't make it or you're going to have a very hard time. And, and, and I just thought, this is creepy. And every time I come into Berlin by train, 
3 o'clock in the morning, somebody's, you know, they stop the train, and there's this big Deutsche Mädchen whacking the lights on and off, saying, you know, Papier and Bitter, you know, and you're waking up out of your sleep going, what is this about? And, and, and dogs are running over the top of the train, and dogs are underneath the train because they're looking for people who are trying to escape. And I thought, oh, this is crappy. And on top of that, if you traveled in Eastern Europe, you had to spend the equivalent of 25 U.S. dollars a day. You could buy a house with 25 bucks in, in Eastern Europe in those days. I slightly exaggerate. But you, could, you couldn't spend it. But that's how they got hard currency. And, and I just thought every day, and I'm going to have to try to get reimbursed for it and sell stories to cover it, that's a, that adds up awful fast. And I just thought, I'm not sure that I want to do this. Now, this is, this is in February of 1989. If I, <laughs> if I had known what was going to be coming in November of 89, I might have made a very different career move. So when did you arrive in Hong Kong? Coincidentally, I arrived on the day that Hu Yaobang died, who was one of the few people in the hierarchy of China at the time who was viewed as not corrupt. So when he died, there were expressions of grief and sorrow, and it turned into demonstrations against corruption. And those demonstrations against corruption ultimately morphed into what became the pro-democracy demonstrations at, at Tiananmen Square and, and ultimately the crackdown at Tiananmen Square. I had to go out and cover the demonstrations in Hong Kong. So I covered two million person marches. Uh, everybody marching in silence, uh, people who were elderly in wheelchairs, people who looked like they'd have a hard time getting up and down the stairs, walking from Central all the way down the Eastern uh, Expressway, coming back around to the old NCNA, New China News Agency, Xinhua office in Happy Valley and corner of Queens Road East. And it was very impressive. Marching in silence, all you can hear are feet and occasional little crying of a kid, and and I thought, well, these folks are these folks are pretty awesome, right? And then in the midst of this, when martial law was imposed in Beijing, there was a big demonstration outside Xinhua. It was also a real, honest to goodness typhoon eight. I mean, it was the real deal with all the rain. And by the time I walked from my house in Happy Valley, I, I wasn't working, but I thought I have to see this, so I left my house put on the only thing I had that passed for a raincoat, which is ridiculous. I might as well have gone out naked. And the water was running like waterfalls off the overhead expressway. And by the time I got to the intersection, there were, I think, someplace between forty and 80,000 people were out there for the demonstration. I'm basically soaked through, and I'm trying to keep my notebook dry. And at one point in the middle of this, I think it was Chum Meng Kuang. Subsequently, he would become one of the first group of legislators to be elected. He was a member of the, of the United Democrats, as, as they were then. He stood up and said, let's show our solidarity with the people in Beijing. Put down your umbrellas and take the hoods off your head. Everybody takes off the hood. Everybody puts down the umbrellas, and they're standing there in driving rain. And I'm trying to take notes under my little worthless mm -hmm. poncho. And I hear th 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 around me, and people are putting up umbrellas over me. And I said, oh, no, it's okay. I'll stand here with everybody else and whatever. And they said, no, no, no. We want you to tell our story. And I still have the notebook with the water splatters on it. And I think that's probably as good as any other moment to pick as to when I decided that I was going to stay in Hong Kong. That and the fact that I felt that the story needed to be told. The first news agency you work for here is Agence France Press. AF AFP offered me the job here. So I worked for them for about a year and a half, and Commercial Radio called me up and said, this Gulf War thing is going to heat up, and we need somebody to help us do the news. So I joined Commercial Radio, and then the government issued the first tender for a broadcaster in 30 years. And sure enough, uh, Metro News, as, as it was called, 
got the, the, the tender, and I was their first hire in Hong Kong. There was a few guys that came out from Taiwan, uh, but I was the first, the first guy here. And we helped set up a 24-hour radio station, that, uh, not in its original form, but it still exists as, as uh, FM Select and Hit Radio. There is an English service, but it's a distant pale shadow of what we were doing, which was 24-7 news wheel. So that was when Metro was set up? Yeah, yeah, and that was in 1991, I think, yeah. So I worked for them until 91 and 95 and then went to work for uh, uh, RTHK. And uh, in RTHK, what, we, did you immediately start on the political beat? When they contacted me, Terry Nealon, who was the news director, called me up and said, uh, how would you like to be our principal reporter covering the handover and send over British stuff? I thought, yeah, that's a, that's a, that's a good front row seat for this event. It became a 19-year run covering Sino-British relations, covering handover stuff, covering a lot of major stories, getting to travel abroad with Chris Patton, with ultimately C.H. Tung and Donald Tsang. And that Donald Tsang trip turned out to be on 9-1-1 in the United States, and that turned into a pretty major story. Uh, and I covered that in Washington, D.C. and in New York City at Ground Zero. Yeah, that was one of the RTSK stories that turned into a big story and you know there were others Ache the the tsunami in Ache and covering that Uh, so that was for the tsunami boxing day or December the 26th in uh, 2004 got sent there now it was interesting I mean you've really covered Hong Kong from you know the the years of Chris Patton well you you came here uh, when it was still Governor David Wilson then uh, Chris Patton's arrival in 1992 you basically knew and know all the, the legislators. It was LegCo a little bit tame after some of the other stories that you'd covered? First of all, I think that sometimes I was the token foreign reporter who got called on because that got the English soundbite out of the way. But, but also I have to say that one of the things that made me persist sometimes in putting questions out there was because often enough... I would ask a question in English, and of course the cameraman, as soon as something is in English, they tune out totally and begin doing cutaway shots or whatever it is. Um, and, and, but the reporters would be jabbing them with their elbows, saying, we're making a signal of uh, keep rolling. Um, take that down. And then they would say in Chinese, you know, governor or whoever it was, chief executive, whatever, could you please answer that question again in Chinese? And, and, and I thought, okay, Keep, keep on doing it. You have a, you, it may be a small role, but, but you have a role to play here by, by, by pushing these very simple, direct questions ahead um, and, and getting, getting the essence of the story in a, in a bite that people can use in whatever language. I always think it's important to get the basics on the record. No denial later. You know, take away the, the deniability. You know, pull back the shroud. Just ask the straight question. And recently, after it was announced that I was going to be leaving Hong Kong, I got a lot of emails from a number of people. And one of the people who surprised me, I wasn't expecting to get an email from this person at all, said, the thing that I most appreciated was that everything was being done in ways that nobody really understood. And you just reported it directly. And I thought, thank you, because that was my intention from the beginning. Now, it's interesting that you've also covered the ups and downs of the democratic process as such in Hong Kong, which I would say is pretty much an idea now. In terms of the early days, you've said to me before how 
Emily Lau was very approachable, Martin Lee. So they were all happy to be quoted. Yeah, everybody was pretty much approachable in those days. You have to remember that at one time in the Legislative Council, right up until the early 90s, after the election in 91, meetings of the Legislative Council, except for the Wednesday full meeting, all committee meetings were closed. Reporters didn't go in and cover those meetings. You sat in the reporter's room, and then when the meeting finally ended, we'd be there for hours, hours. And then the convener would come out, and the convener would never say what his or her own position was. Well, I can't give you my position because I'm the convener. And they would give you the sort of overall view of the group. That's what I mean by indirect with a scrim and kabuki. And, 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 and it was very hard to get by that. And one of the early moves of, of the pro-democracy forces, as they were then pan-democrats, as a term didn't arrive till much later, was to make them open. And you could go in and hear what was said, and you could you know, take the notes and hear the government officials have to, have to <laughs> reveal things. And having to declare your income was another one. But, you know, those procedural things are very important. My thanks to Francis Moriarty, talking there on his career as a radio and print journalist. Thanks for listening, and join me next week on Hong Kong Heritage. <laughs>